Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Ian Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller. Uh, I'm away from my usual home office setup today, so apologies if the audio quality is any less than it usually is uh, or if there's any extraneous background noise. I don't have quite as much control over that as I usually do, so hopefully it won't be an issue and you won't even notice. Uh, we have our usual sort of lineup for you today, so we have our news roundup to kick things off with a discussion of a couple of things from the streaming video space, so Netflix earnings and Hulu uh, apparently getting ready to start offering downloads of content. Uh, secondly, we've got a couple of Android-related things. Android One is supposedly coming to the US, and uh, the Pixel still seems to be shipping very, very slowly, and, and the, the uh, uh, shipping times are well out from from the current from now. If you try to order one today, you have to wait quite a while to get it, so we'll talk about that. And then thirdly, um, Apple updated two of its Pro Audio apps this week, or at least a Pro Audio app and another Audio app, so Logic Pro, Got a big update, and then GarageBand on iOS also got an update in keeping with that. So we'll talk about that. Uh, our question of the week today is about what the current state of autonomous driving is, and this is something I've been looking into a lot lately, um, both just desk research but also attending CES and then especially the Detroit Auto Show last week. Um, so I'll be talking through a lot of the detail around the current state of autonomous driving, where that's going. And then our third segment will be a preview of earnings for next week, and we're specifically going to talk about Samsung, Google, and Microsoft, three of the companies that will be uh, reporting earnings next week. And then we'll wrap up with a weekly pick where Aaron has a book recommendation. So let's kick off with the news roundup and these uh, two bits of streaming video news. Firstly, Netflix reported earnings on Wednesday afternoon, uh, and then secondly, Hulu um, will be offering downloads. It's something that they've uh, indicated they plan to offer, but it now seems that that's going to be coming in the next few months. So that was really the news from this week. Aaron, what was your take on these two from what you've seen? Uh, as far as Netflix goes, it's exciting and encouraging to see international revenue picking up. That was a big investment for them, and it looks like it's turning a corner and and going well. In fact, I think I saw you tweet uh, a chart indicating that international revenue might overtake U.S. revenue um, this year at some point. Subscribers, think, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Oh, sorry, subscribers, not revenue. But I think that's exciting. I think... Um, I think there's a lot of room for Netflix to grow, and I think Netflix growth internationally is a is a good thing for consumers in the U.S. Um, I think it helps stabilize the company. Not that they're at risk of being unstable, but but a company that has more diverse revenue sources is always going to be healthier. Um, and I think it's also going to over time continue to diversify and broaden uh, content that's available, which has always been a legitimate complaint about Netflix. So, yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that part's great. I think downloadable Hulu is inevitable. It, it's funny because, you know, this idea, like always connected devices, um, you know, I, I think if they're ever going to be a reality, it's still at least a decade away. Mm -hmm. um, but now that these services have picked up enough, a, a, enough of a client base, um, where if they bake in this feature, they're going to have a lot using it. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, I think it also um, it sort of speaks to how clearly the future is streaming. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's always been one of the big advantages for the, the sort of purchase and rental model that you could download and then take it with you. And uh, when Netflix you know, began offering this a while back, I thought, oh, that would be useful for if I'm on a plane. And, you know, that was the main use case when I thought I might use it. Right. Um, what I've discovered is there's more use cases than that, and so you know, I you know joined a gym towards the end of last year when the weather got colder and, and outside exercise wasn't going to be an option for a while, and uh, so I've been going to a gym recent regularly, and they they have Wi-Fi there, and so in theory that should allow me to stream Netflix, but it's really patchy, um, and I found that downloading content for that use case is useful as well. So if I'm on a stationary bike and I want to watch a Netflix show, I can now download it ahead of time and just have it there rather than having to wait for it to buffer or whatever. Um, so there are, there are actually plenty of scenarios outside of planes where it's still useful to have downloads. And, and, you know, with Hulu, I've watched some Hulu shows at the gym too, but I've had the same issue and it would be very nice to be able to download those for there, for trips, you know, if I'm in a hotel with bad Wi-Fi or whatever, you know, there are lots of scenarios where I can imagine it being very useful. Um, yeah. as far as Netflix earnings, you, you kind of cover the main points. I think one other point to note is, you know, they're, they're profitable. If you look at it on a P and L basis, they're profitable. Uh, but they are burning massive amounts of cash. And, and so the, the uh, disparity between those two is pretty unusual, uh, but it ultimately comes down to content purchases. And so it's the fact that they are 
now doing so much of their original content where basically they have to put in a lot of the money up front long before they actually can start using that video content uh, for services to subscribers. Whereas, you know, when you license content from third parties, you typically pay uh, when you're ready to start using it and, and you pay during the life of the contract. And so, um, you know, the, it's pushed a lot of that purchasing up front, but it means they're burning, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in cash a quarter and having to borrow money to cover that um, so that they have cash uh, to, to cover all of that. Over time, that should normalize a little bit um, because those upfront investments will start paying off in the form of subscriber growth and all the rest of it. But that's still one of the biggest single questions with Netflix right now is, you know, can they manage that cash burn over time as they invest so heavily? And it's going to be $6 billion this year uh, in original content, so uh, in content in, in total. So huge investments being made. Yeah, I um, have a hard time imagining them not getting access to cash as they need it. And yeah, so, no, I think I, I think, think they've will. shown that the Netflix original model works, and and it's just growing and yeah. really hitting a great stride right now. So yeah, absolutely. Let's move on to our second news roundup topic, which is um, Android related. So there was a report from the Information this week about uh, Android One, which has sort of been Google's emerging markets play for Android for a couple of years now. Um, it's a very stripped down sort of stock version of Android for emerging markets. It was intended to be very easy for emerging markets vendors that didn't want to do a lot of uh, or couldn't afford to do a lot of sort of customization in the UI and so on just to allow them to get cheap Android devices out there. So the $100 price point was talked about quite a bit in that context. Um, the information reported that they're now planning to bring Android 1 to the US, which is interesting because it's obviously a very different market from, say, India, which is the major focus for Android 1. Um, so that's one piece of news. And then the second one is just Pixel, which is obviously Google's first-party smartphone. Uh, it's still very hard to get hold of um, from a purchasing perspective. You can't uh, easily get them shipping quickly, and so they, they seem to be struggling to keep up with demand. And it's not really clear whether that's just they, they configured supply uh, in such a way that the supply levels are just far too low or whether it really is very strong demand. Um, they're certainly selling decently well at Verizon. There's some interesting data that I saw this week from company called Wave 7 Research that indicates it's a decent chunk of uh, smartphone sales at Verizon, but of course nobody else is selling it, and so other than Google itself. So, um, At any rate, a couple of interesting stories there. Aaron, what did you make of those? So I have a conspiracy theory about Android One in the United States. Uh, I, think, I think Google's obviously been frustrated from the start with Android that manufacturers will take and customize Android and also control uh, software updates in a way that I think hurts the the Android brand. Um, Android One would be an interesting approach to try to get this more standardized in the United States. the The question is, what then would be the incentive of a manufacturer shipping an Android One phone? Well, if you're any other player besides Samsung, part of the incentive is the fact that it would be a way to distinguish yourself and hopefully win over customers who would just prefer the stock Android experience. Um, and also be guaranteed fresh updates as they're ready rather than having to wait for um, manufacturers or carriers to push them out. But the other is Google Assistant. It wouldn't surprise me at all if Google Assistant became an exclusive to Android One phones. And the idea is that it would be a carrot to manufacturers saying, hey, if you go with Android One, then you can get Google Assistant just like the Pixel has. Um, it, now, I, I'm not sure that's a wise strategy necessarily but uh but i wonder if uh google's maybe going to test the waters with it yeah it's an interesting idea certainly um yeah i, I guess the, the pushback on that would be i think you know the google pixel strategy of, of preferring that for google assistant has really not worked out well for google it may have helped them sell a few more pixels but it's really put them behind in the sort of voice platform race and what we saw at ces a couple of weeks ago is a great sort of indication of that that you know alexa's kind of running away with that market right now because Google's kind of held the assistant back. Um, you know, that may start to change in the next few months and maybe Google learns its lesson and, and says, um, essentially, you know, we, we've got to stop using Google Assistant as a tool to do other stuff. We want Google Assistant to be adopted as broadly as possible. And so it has to be on every device as quickly as we can get it there. That means putting it into Android of all flavors. Um, but to your point, you know, they've made one bad strategic decision around Google Assistant. There's no guarantee they won't make another one. And so, you know, that, that does lend some sort of plausibility to what you're saying. Um, as I see it, I think Android One kind of takes the slot to some extent that the Pixel phones have had in the past as well. Um, you know, they're discontinuing, not Pixel, excuse me, Nexus. They're discontinuing the Nexus um, strategy and, and, and that line of phones. They've kind of said that explicitly. 
Um, and so, you know, that used to be a basically stock Android device um, that was relatively cheap compared to other premium smartphones, still was a decent smartphone. Um, you know, and they also used Motorola sort of towards the tail end of their ownership of Motorola. They used that as a way of pursuing sort of lower cost but still very good stock Android type devices. And so I could see them using Android One to sort of fill that gap in the market as well. Um, big question is just who sells this stuff? You know, do they right. get broad carrier distribution for it? Um, you know, if not, then it's basically dead in the water or it's, you know, Nexus scale stuff, which is really not all that compelling. So very interested to see who the partner is as well. I mean, LG was the only company mentioned, but there was no guarantee that they are the partner. So it could be a Huawei or someone like that. It could be their way in finally to, to selling more smartphones in the US. So lots of interesting stuff that could happen there. Um, let's talk then the third news roundup topic about uh, Apple's uh, announcement around two audio apps this week. So Logic Pro is the pro level audio app that Apple sells for sort of mixing audio. It's a $200 app. So it's a uh, desktop app and uh, GarageBand obviously exists both on the Mac and in iOS and it was the iOS version that got a big update this week um, and there's actually some ties between those two now where you can create files in GarageBand on iOS and import it back into Logic and, and do some interesting stuff that goes back and forth between the two. Uh, Logic Pro update makes use of the touch bar but it has a lot of other interface updates as well and so it's sort of uh, very similar to the update that we saw to Final Cut Pro that coincided with the touch bar announcement. Um, so this is basically Logic Pro getting a similar sort of upgrade. Just from talking to one of my brothers-in-law who uh, uses Final Cut quite a bit for video editing for work, um, you know, he was saying he really liked the big update and he doesn't have a MacBook Pro with a touch bar. So it wasn't just about touch bar support, it was about how they'd rethought the user interface, some of the new features and stuff. He really feels like that's a kind of a game changer for Final Cut Pro. So that was a fairly significant update. Uh, there, so you know, assuming, and I don't know Logic Pro as well. I don't know anybody who uses it, so I can talk to anybody about that in the same way. But I imagine this is a sort of update on a similar scale where it really makes it that much more usable. Yeah, it's interesting because the narrative right now that Apple is neglecting its pro users is is only, I think, complicated by the details with the update to Logic and GarageBand. I mean, GarageBand is not really a pro user thing, although there are no. a lot of semi pros that use GarageBand. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, the reason I think it complicates it is because this is a substantial update from everything I've read. I think a lot of people are really excited about the, the new features um, mm -hmm. that are baked in. But at the same time, it, it took a few months um, right. longer, I think, than people expected. Now, that may be a misrepresentation. Um, you know, Apple usually, um, historically, if I remember right, logic updates are pushed out more around this season than they are in, in, in the fall, especially big mm -hmm. updates. And so it might just be a timing thing that way. Yeah. Um, but it's not, but this certainly isn't like a nail in the coffin of the idea that, that Apple neglects its pro users. I think that still hangs out there with, uh, with um, arguments in favor and against. Yeah, well, there's, there's two sides to that argument, right? There's the hardware side and then there's the software side. I think, you know, this does right. help address the software side. You know, the, all the big, Pro apps that Apple still has, and they obviously abandoned the photo at one aperture, so um, you know they don't have that anymore. But uh, you know the video and audio apps have now received really significant updates in the last few months. So they clearly care about those. They are going to update those. You know it helps to address the software argument. But of course, a big part of the argument in recent months has been what about the Mac? You know, and about the desktops not getting updates for a long time, and the MacBook Pro perhaps being slightly underpowered for what pros actually want today and going forward. And so the hardware side. You know, it hasn't been addressed as, as anywhere near as satisfactorily. It could be that we see big updates to the desktop line in the next couple of months, and it does address all of that. But, uh, you know, as you say, it's still out there and it still has some legitimacy to it. Right. All right, well, let's move on to our question of the week. And as I said up front, the question of the week is what is the state of autonomous driving and where is that going? Um, and so I've spent quite a bit of time recently researching this. It's an enormously complicated topic, and we're not going to get uh, to all of the details here. So um, this will be a necessarily sort of fairly superficial discussion. Um, I will try to dive deeper around some specific areas, but you know, anybody who knows in depth about this and is listening, you know, I recognize there's more to it than that. Um, I'm going to be 
writing a lot about this in the next uh, few weeks and months uh, as I dive deeper into it and, and, and I have a lot more uh, both in my head and in my notes than I'll be able to share today. So just know that, but hopefully we'll, we'll dive deeper than most of the coverage that you may have seen publicly and, and get into some interesting details around this and some of the complexity around all of this as well. So uh, I'll be answering the questions and Aaron will be asking them. So fire away, Aaron. Thanks, Ian. Well, I mean, I, I think the best question to start with is what exactly do we mean by autonomous driving? I, I know when the phrase comes up, the what pops into my head is, you know, putting my kids in a car that drives them to school and I don't have to go, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And inside they're maybe doing last minute homework or I don't know what else right. I'd be doing yeah. on the way over there. Maybe I shouldn't let them ride alone. But, <laughs> but, uh, but I mean, that's what I imagine. I imagine everybody having that, you know, most mm. people wouldn't own cars. They would have a car service that they just subscribe to basically and, you know, get tr- trips where they need to go when they need it. What, uh, what, what do we really mean when we say autonomous driving? Yeah, yeah. So that's a good place to start. Um, and really, it's part of a spectrum that runs all the way from entirely manually driven cars, you know, the way cars have been basically all along until very recently, all the way up to fully autonomous vehicles. And that spectrum's been somewhat formalized in recent years by a body called the SAE. Uh, and it's just called the SAE today. Originally, it was the Society of Automotive Engineers, but it has sort of aerospace and other engineers that's part of it as well now. So they just go by SAE. But this is basically a standards body that sets a lot of the uh, international standards for things relating to cars and, and their performance and so on. And so they uh, took on a project to try to define some stuff around this uh, and eventually came up with a report uh, in uh, 2014 that describes uh, the six-level system. You may well have heard references to this system um, in the form of level two driving, level three driving, and so on. I'll talk through that. Um, the standard is technically known as uh, J3016, so j three zero one six. And it's been updated a little bit since the latest version, I think, was uh, produced at the end of 2016. So dived a little deeper into some of the definitions. It's important to recognize this body has no regulatory role whatsoever. So this is mostly about being descriptive and trying to be helpful in allowing people to talk about some of this stuff in a way that's consistent. Um, but it has no regulatory force. It has no force of law. It's not the kind of thing that anybody has to listen to at all, but it, it is a useful framework. And so... Um, it's worth talking through that framework and then and then talking about kind of how that's been applied. Um, so it, it, this system, as I say, deals with six levels from zero up to five. And so zero is no driving automation. So the, the driver does all the driving. Um, you know, they're entirely responsible for every aspect of it. The car does nothing. Uh, then you have driver assistance. So that's level one. And so this is about a specific driving uh aspect of driving essentially um, being helped along by some automation so um, there's interesting terms about lateral and longitudinal vehicle motion Um, so you know this is about going faster and slower or maybe going side to side depending on different circumstances but the expectation is that driver does all the other driving and then there's this one specific subtask of uh, the dynamic driving task that's one of the terms that's used quite a bit in this stuff so essentially one very specific task. So this might be, um, you know, cruise control, or it might be something along those lines, where it's one very specific aspect of driving. Every other aspect is still controlled by the driver, and the driver absolutely remains in control, ready to take over at any minute, um, and will be responsible for, you know, emergencies or anything else. So that's level one, and this, um, so that's fairly basic. Then you've got level two, which is called partial driving automation, and this is about sustained execution by a driving automation system of both lateral and longitudinal vehicle motion control. In other words, acceleration, deceleration, and then steering. Um, And uh, with the expectation that the driver completes the um, subtask and supervises the driving automation system. In other words, the system is responsible for you know, uh, steering and acceleration, deceleration over a sustained period of time, but the driver is very much still in control, very much aware, very much, um, you know, has their hands on the steering wheel and so on still, um, and is, is ready at any moment to take over. So they're focused and they're paying attention and so on. Uh, then you have level three. This is conditional driving automation. And so this is in certain conditions, the car can completely take over and the driver can somewhat relax and, and uh, the system is ultimately responsible. And the system then has to request uh, the driver to intervene. So there's this formal term about a request to intervene where the system has to say, you need to intervene. And so there's probably some kind of noise or a flashing light or combination or some spoken phrase or something that in- invites the driver to take over again. 
but that's level three uh, driving. So that's basically about you're in a certain mode. You know, maybe it's parking, maybe it's um, maybe it's on the highway driving. Um, but there is a certain mode in which the car knows everything it needs to to take over the driving task entirely, basically. And then it tells the driver when the driver needs to intervene. And then there's four. That's high driving automation. So this is when the car basically does everything. Uh, in certain conditions. So it can't handle all conditions, but in certain conditions the, dry, the car basically does everything that the driver would. So the driver's still there, but they can basically check out under those conditions. And then five is full driving automation. So the car always, under all circumstances, does all driving. The driver never basically has to do anything other than maybe tell the car where to go. Um, and so those are the levels that are talked about. And so there's that six-level system designed by the SAE, released in 2014, updated towards the end of last year. Um, the U.S. National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, NHTSA, it's usually referred to as NHTSA uh, in the industry, is, is the U.S. body responsible for forming a regulatory framework around all this. They had their own version of a sort of level-based system back in 2013. Uh, since the SAE came out with its system, NHTSA's basically embraced that. So it's become the standard framework for thinking about autonomous driving in the industry. Uh, when I was at the car show, everybody referred to you know these different levels as if everybody knew what they were talking about. And so it's become the standard for talking about all of this. It's not without its critics, and we'll kind of come back to that later. There are some shortcomings in this level-based approach, but it is, for better or worse, the, the phraseology that everybody's using to talk about autonomous driving in the industry today. And so autonomous driving, as I say, is really about a spectrum with those different levels, fully autonomous being level five, entirely manual being level zero, and lots of stuff in between. Well, that's a really helpful theoretical rundown of kind of how this, at least anyway, the way to think about autonomous driving. I don't think I've ever really thought about all the different levels and how that might work. So it does prompt the next question, though. What uh, What's the current state? Like, how far along the five levels are, or six levels are we um, in terms of technology? Yeah, that's a great question. So the vast majority of the car industry today is between levels zero and two, basically. Um, so, you know, five is the highest. We're, we're between zero, so no automation at all, and two. Uh, almost all cars rolling off production lines today have some level one or assisted driving features, so cruise control, emergency braking, that kind of thing. Some cars are starting to have level two autonomy features, so staying in a lane during cruise control, so that's combining steering and then acceleration and deceleration. Um, Tesla's autopilot feature has been described as level three. Uh, I'm not sure I would describe it that way. I think um, it's more level two than it is level three because uh, it can't handle all circumstances. And, and one of the characteristics of level three is when you're in that mode, the car requests the driver to intervene rather than the other way around. And so if you think about the, the crash that happened, uh, the fatal crash that happened last year, which we've talked about on a previous episode, uh, the problem was that the car didn't effectively handle the situation and the driver had checked out. Um, and so uh, that's probably not level three, that's more level two. And so there is some complication here in that people like to claim levels that they're not really at. Um, but the vast majority of what we're seeing in the market today is between zero and two. Um, as I say, some controversy about whether what Tesla's doing is level three. Um, Tesla claims that all its new cars are shipping with all the hardware necessary to eventually support level five, um, so completely autonomous all the time, uh, not the software obviously to do that yet, so they're not ready to actually enable those features yet, but they're saying they have all the hardware, so sensors and everything else you need to support this stuff. Um, you know, The reality is that other than Tesla, every other uh, car manufacturer is basically working on two parallel tracks at the same time. Uh, so on the one hand, they are uh, developing their existing assisted driving systems and making them more sophisticated over time, moving down that path from level zero to one to two. Um, and at the same time, they're working on more fully autonomous technology, which could provide level three, four or five automation in future on some sort of theoretical future car. And so from everybody I've talked to, those two are separate tracks uh, from a development perspective. One's about production cars and improving driver assistance and safety systems. The other one's about full autonomy, and they do share learnings back and forth. So there's clearly some stuff that you learn in one of those spheres that goes back into the other and vice versa. Um, but for the most part, those are separate projects, one focused on production cars and kind of today in the next 12 to 24 months, the other one focused on sort of potential future autonomous cars, and that's more sort of R&D type effort and 
uh, it's, it's often in a different part of the company and, and that kind of thing. So that's kind of the state of things right now is realistically we're at level zero, one and two in terms of what you can buy in most production vehicles today. There's a lot of effort going into building future three, four and five uh, cars, but that's not really here today. Um, and uh, and so that's kind of the, the state of things at the moment. So when do we get to level five? I mean, not to sound impatient, but that's the one I'm really <laughs> excited about. And I have a car I love driving, but the idea of not having to, the idea of, for example, in a longer commute, being able to not focus on driving, but instead mm-hmm. focus on work or reading yeah. or something else, that's pretty exciting. So, I mean, how far out is level five? Yeah. Yeah, so that's that is the big question I think here, and um, no one knows the answer. It's a simple answer, but I'll give you a more complicated one. Um, there are very smart people out there who say actually, uh, level five isn't possible. Um, this can't happen if you go very strictly by the definition, which is that the car always, under all circumstances, has to do all the things that a driver would, um, because there are always unforeseen circumstances. There are always situations that nobody's ever thought of or encountered before where you suddenly have to deal with it. You know, you're driving along uh, a country road and there's a tree across the road and in order to get around the tree, you have to briefly pull off into the dirt at the side of the road and make your way around the tree to carry on, you know. And a driver knows how to do that, um, but uh, the car wouldn't necessarily know exactly what to do in that circumstance. How, How does the car know if it's too muddy on the side of the road to drive off there or if, if the incline is too steep and the car will tip over you know there's so many things that you know car may not be able to handle um and so that you know you can make the argument we'll never have or at least not in the foreseeable future level five cars because there will always be some of those circumstances in which the user needs to take over um, there are other people who say okay if you go by a slightly less strict definition and talk about you know basic road driving um, you know, level five is possible, but it's many, many years off um, because, again, that means the car has to perform at least as well as the human driver, and we'll talk about this later, probably much better, actually. And so then uh, drive under all conditions the driver can drive under. So the reality is level five is a very long way away. Um, but, in fact, a different way to think about it, and this is this is where some of that criticism of the level system comes in, there are other, other people that argue that structuring all this as levels is the wrong approach for, for a couple of different reasons. Uh, for starters, it sort of implies this logical progression through the levels. So you start with zero, you go to one, you go to two, you go to three, you go to four and five in that order, uh, and each builds on the last. Um, and many car manufacturers aren't thinking about it that way at all. They are, as I said, simultaneously working on stuff in the zero to three, two, zero to two sort of sphere, and then three to five, and they don't necessarily see a crossover from two to three. Uh, they may well end up jumping straight from two to four, for example. Um, and one of the big reasons is three is a really hard one. Um, you know, and we talked about this in the context of the Tesla autopilot crash. Um, but the problem with three is the driver has to disengage or is allowed to disengage. That's kind of the definition of three is the car totally takes over and then the car uh, makes a request to intervene to the driver. Well, think about that for a second. What if you fall asleep? What if you're deep in some task? You're watching a movie. You're um, working on an email. You're working on a PowerPoint presentation. Who knows what we'll do in our cars in future under these circumstances? But all the research and tons of research has been done on this in simulators and, and other stuff. And this, some of this research dates back to like the 1940s with radar operators and things like that. Uh, inattention is a really big deal. And uh, snapping people out of that uh, it takes 15 seconds. You know, that's the sort of standard term that I've heard from several people. Uh, well, if you're driving down the highway at 65 miles per hour, you go 100 feet every second. So 15 seconds at 100 feet means 1,500 feet. So we're talking about a car that can't handle all aspects of driving, only some, and that needs to give the driver enough warning so that they have 15 seconds to respond and take control, evaluate the situation, figure out what to do, um, and so, as I say, in a highway scenario, that could easily be 1,500 feet worth of driving. Well, how can a car foresee what it's going to be dealing with 1,500 feet from now? You know, what if there's a massive crash right in front of the car and it doesn't know how to deal with it? Um, so the problem with level three is that it actually seems really, really hard to imagine how a car could ever do that well enough that it can balance the driving task with the driver. And so there's some theories that suggest actually we skip over level three. We focus on level zero to two, and then we focus on four and five, 
and ultimately we leap over three and go straight from from the first set to the second set and three never really happens and, and obviously tesla's already highlighted some of the dangers of three um but you know some of the other problems are that, that realistically you know these levels are often used to describe cars so this is a level three car a level four car and that's the wrong way to think about things too it's, it's about tasks and about scenarios and use cases and so um you, what, what you're going to have realistically is a car that operates at level zero in some circumstances, level one in other circumstances, level two in the yeah, third set of circumstances, and, and so on and so forth. And so realistically, you're not going to get a level five car. You're going to get a, le- a car that operates at level four in some circumstances, and then at level two or even level zero in other circumstances. So maybe you uh, are the one that pulls the car out of the garage and drives through your residential streets and then gets on the highway and then it operates at level four while you're on the highway. Uh, maybe, you know, it operates at level two when you're uh, getting out of the garage. You know, it can pull itself out of the garage and onto the street. Then you take over in the tricky residential streets and then again it goes to level three or four on the highway. So realistically, it's not really about a level five car. It's about, um, for the most part, over the next few years, it's going to be about mixing these different modes in different scenarios. Um, And those scenarios could be where you're driving. They could be what the weather conditions are. They could be whether it's daylight or nighttime. They could be whether there's traffic or not. They could be the speed that you're going to be driving at. It could be... um, any number, you know, it could be the city that you're in. So it has the, the mapping data to know that, you know, to, to know exactly the details of the roads in, in one city. But if you go to a different city, it doesn't have that and has to fall back to a lower level of automation. So it, if you talk to the actual car manufacturers and so on, they aren't talking about building level three, level four cars. They're talking about level three or four functions and the conditions under which those things will work. And then about any given car combining these functions in different conditions and so on. So if we get back to um, the timing question, uh, which is the one that you actually asked, um, you've seen car manufacturers talk about specific timelines. I'm going to use one example, which is Ford. So Ford has said in 2021, we will have a level four car. Um, And realistically there's there's no way to have a level four car that, that operates at level four pretty much everywhere but that's kind of the definition of level four is it has limits and conditions under which it works and so what they're really talking about building is a car that can operate at level four so basically takes over all driving tasks within a specific geographic area and so they're not going to be selling that car to you or me they're going to be selling it in fleets to uber or lyft or someone like that or maybe running their own fleet uh, of ride sharing or ride hailing vehicles and so it's going to operate within a specific defined geographic area uh, where the mapping data is all known, where the regulations in place to allow that to happen, uh, where you know there are certain speed limits and various other things that they're, the car is aware of. And that is where it will be able to drive. And so any timeline that you see from a car manufacturer that's, that's anywhere in the next sort of five to ten years is either talking about that kind of very restricted, limited, certain conditions type autonomy, or it's unrealistic, frankly. And so Lyft is talking about having half its fleet be autonomous in five years. That's complete nonsense. There's no way it's going to happen. There may be individual cities where it's it's able to do what Ford's talking about here and say, okay, within this city, we have a car that knows how to do that job and, and is regulated and licensed to do it. But that's about as far as it's going to get. Uh, any other announcement that's talking about a shorter than five-year horizon is either unrealistic or is talking about level two, level four, under very specific circumstances. Highway driving only in many cases. Maybe it's getting out of a parking spot. It might be uh, you have some kind of ride sharing service where the cars get parked in a parking lot and they come to you when you order them. So the car knows how to get from parking lot A to street B and then pick up its driver who then takes control. You know, that's the kind of stuff that we're talking about in any kind of shorter timeline. Uh, So again, level five is way, way off. Nobody's even providing specific timelines for that. Tesla's arguing their cars could do it in theory uh, with the right software, but uh, they haven't really provided any timelines around that. Um, but that's really, you know, a realistic picture of timing as regards level five and really every other level two. So this is interesting to me because you kind of you kind of went through some of the barriers that are ones I would have thought of. I mean, this isn't just a question of raw computing power, right? This isn't just about having a really smart computer, although it sounds like that's one of Tesla's main arguments that it's just about making the software smarter. Yeah. Um, 
but uh, but what other barriers are there to levels four and five that we ought to know about? I mean, is there sensor issues? I think the discussion on level three was interesting because one of the barriers is human failure, right. not necessarily engineering. And so, so what other what other major barriers are there to levels four and five that we should that we should know about? Yeah, um, so I, I think they fall into three big buckets. So there's technical barriers, there's regulatory barriers, and there's consumer barriers. Um, on the technical side, there's a lot of elements. So we need more affordable and smaller sensors. Um, so if you if you've seen a lot of the self-driving cars today, they've often they look like bugs, sort of look like ordinary cars, but then they have all this extra gear on the outside of them, big lidar systems and radar systems and cameras and things strapped to the outside of them. Um, there's starting to be some more progress on some of that stuff. So Ford's latest version of its car has some of that stuff built into sort of a roof rack, basically, but it still has a couple of little antennae coming off it with the LIDARs in them. Realistically, if people want to buy uh, one of these cars, it's got to look like a regular car. You don't want it looking like a bug. Um, and so you want that stuff to be integrated into the car, which means it needs to be shrunk down. Uh, it also needs to get a lot cheaper. Right now, the LiDAR systems are super expensive. And so, you know, LiDAR, radar, cameras, and so on, the cost of all those components needs to come down. Um, so that's, you know, a big part of it. Um, we need more precise mapping data. You know, the mapping data we have right now basically says, here's a road, this is where it goes. It may say, this is the speed limit. It might say, has this many lanes? This is the lane that you want to be in to turn right or whatever. But we need much more detail than that. We need to know exactly where the boundaries between the lanes are. We need to know where the edge of the road is. We need to know, you know, where the median is. We need to know, um, you know, how high the bridges are. We need to know so much more detail uh, because that has to be a core part of how the car navigates, so that it knows, you know, the difference between sort of fixtures and things that are moving around. Um, and so you need this very precise mapping data, and you need it to be updated in real time because if there's a road closure. Um, or if there's an accident or something like that, you want the car to be aware of that so it can take the appropriate action, change the route or prepare to slow down or whatever. So there's that side of things as well. Um, we need, you know, to your point about computers, we need better computer processing power. We need computers that are better at machine learning and artificial intelligence so that they can make sense of this data and make smart decisions, even if they haven't specifically been trained to do some of that stuff. And all the technology behind that needs to shrink down and shrink down so that it can actually fit inside the car without taking up a lot of extra space. Um, we need lower latency wireless networks. So, um, you know, cars, increasingly autonomous cars, will communicate with the cloud um, for real-time updates on traffic and so on, but they'll also com communicate with each other. Um, so there's a thing called vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle communication that, that's been talked about a lot where, you know, if a vehicle up ahead is involved in a crash, then it signals to all other vehicles in the area, there's a crash, watch out, slow down. Um, you know, that kind of thing, or the infrastructure in the city might communicate. So if the traffic light up ahead is turning red, then it can signal that to the cars in the area. But that doesn't work if it takes several seconds for the message to get through. You need it to get through instantaneously in a matter of milliseconds. And so we need very uh, widely available, very low latency wireless networks. And so that's another thing that needs to happen. Um, those are all, you know, some of the important components for making autonomous driving safe, cheap, and then integrated into existing car designs. But there's some really other, other really interesting stuff too, like redesigning the actuators in the car to be redundant in the case of a power failure. Um, and what I mean by that may not be apparent, but the example that I've heard used, which is a really good one, is if you're in a normal car, there may well be things like power steering and power braking, such that you know you only have to apply a little bit of pressure on the steering wheel to, to turn because uh, the car does the rest of the work, or you apply a little bit of pressure on the brake and then the car does the rest of the work. Um, if those systems fail, if there's a power failure, for example, the power braking and steering won't be available, but you can, through sheer brute force, still turn the car brake you know, a little harder than you would have otherwise done and, and keep the car under control. Well, what happens if there's a power failure in an autonomous vehicle? Um, you know, There's no human being to apply pressure to the steering wheel or the brake pedal. So what happens? So you need to redesign the car so that there's redundancy, so that there's a failover system that can mechanically uh, put the foot on the brake or mechanically turn the steering wheel if the electrical systems uh, stop working. So there's all kinds of complex stuff like that. If you need to be able to control the car even without a human being driving, then you have to uh, design the car in those ways. So there's interesting stuff that's been worked through by 
the car manufacturers around it, all that as well. So that's all the technical stuff. Then there's a whole regulatory side of things, and that's complex too. So there's the, the licensing of cars. So you have to make tons of complex decisions as a regulator about when does an autonomous vehicle get to be released onto the roads? What level of safety is acceptable? Do they only have to be good as, as good as a human driver or better? If so, how much better? You know, what level of fatalities do we accept? Uh, you know, those are really hard decisions. Uh, do the, do uh, uh, what about liability? So, is the driver responsible if the car is currently driving? Is it the car manufacturer that's responsible? Uh, if it's found that it's the machine learning system that was at fault, you know, is it Google or someone that's that's ultimately liable then for the crash? Um, you know, is it the regulator because they allowed the car onto the road when it wasn't really ready? Uh, you know, so many questions about liability. Um, you've got uh, the question, the trolley problem. Um, so, you know, there's the old philosophical problem about, you know, there's a trolley going along a track and, uh, you know, on, the track is about to fork and on one fork there's, uh, call it, you know, a grandmother pushing uh, herself across the, the tracks and, and you might hit her and on the other side there is a school bus full of children, you know, which way does the trolley go? Does it, you know, you can't stop in time so you have to hit one or the other, which one do you hit? And so when it comes to autonomous driving, you've got to train these cars to make those decisions. You know, if you're in a situation where there's no way to entirely avoid a collision, which way do you go? You know, do you prioritize the driver's safety? Do you prioritize safety of pedestrians? Do you prioritize not hitting any other cars? You know, how do you make those decisions? Who trains them? Who makes those decisions? How do they get implemented? How do you train the car to think through those scenarios? You know, how, does it have enough inputs to really make those decisions in a smart way? So, so many complex regulatory issues as well. Uh, and then, of course, that has to happen not just on a municipal or state level, but at a federal level and ideally an international level because, say, in Europe, cars drive between countries. So you want consistent regulation between countries. So lots of complex stuff there. And then on the consumer side, uh, there's the simple matter of consumer acceptance. You know, does a consumer trust the car? Uh, but then there's you know a couple of other things. So consumers tend to either overtrust or undertrust these systems. So uh, you know the Tesla crash last year, the driver arguably overtrusted the system and it didn't do its job. Um, and there's a tendency for drivers to try to test the limits. You know, there's lots of videos on YouTube of people videoing their Teslas driving themselves and so on. You know, that's dangerous and it's not what the car's intended to do. So the cars need to be designed in such a way that they can prevent drivers from doing that kind of stuff. Um, you know, so basically keep an eye on the driver and make sure they really are still paying attention under certain circumstances. Um, do consumers want self-driving cars? You know, um, one of the companies I met with at the car show last week was BMW. You know, do you buy a BMW just to have it drive you? Um, you know, do you want to drive that car yourself still maybe? And, and do we get to the point where consumers are forced to give up the right to drive their own cars because they're much less safe than autonomous driving? So lots of consumer issues too. So there are barriers aplenty here. You know, technical uh, stuff will definitely you know last several more years in terms of getting this stuff ready. But you know, everything's on the right track. There's you know progress being made along each of the technical uh, tracks that I talked about, and they'll get there eventually. The regulatory stuff's a lot less certain. Um, and we've seen some bust ups between Uber and regulators in California already. Um, you know, we're going to have lots of that over the next few years, and lots of questions still to be answered there. So lots of barriers, frankly, some of which are you know going to be overcome through sheer will and time others are much more complicated and it's much less certain how it's all going to turn out so i mean what you you've done a ton of research now what big lessons should we all be taking away from all this um as far mm. as the state of autonomous driving right now yeah uh I, I think i think one of the biggest positives is that the industry isn't you know resisting this you know um this is one of several big shifts that are going on in the industry right now and the industry could say you know what we'll let tesla do this stuff we're going to stick to what we're doing and, and they're not doing that they're, you know all the major car manufacturers are doing something with regard to developing you know not just better driver assistance systems but actual autonomous driving too um, the reality is that cars operating at level zero to two are going to be by far the majority, not just on the roads, but in terms of what rolls off production lines for years to come. Uh, you know, that means we're going to get better and better driver assistance systems. They're going to be better at braking in emergencies. They're going to be better at keeping us in the lane and then be able to hand over control, uh, you know, on the highway, for example, more and more um, the sort of autopilot style stuff for better or worse. Um, you know, and there could be questions about uh, how much control the driver still needs to have and so on. Uh, there's going to be clever stuff about keeping the driver uh, awake when they're driving as well. So, you know, helping the driver to stay 
uh, focused, you know, controlling the heating and cooling and the fresh air in the car. You know, these are things that are being talked about using audio prompts, perhaps even the car has a conversation with the driver to try to keep them alert and interested in lots of interesting stuff being experimented with. So we'll see lots of that over the next few years. There is a big question about whether level three is a good idea. And I think it's quite possible that level three largely ends up getting skipped, that we skip straight from this level zero through two driver assistance stuff to level four. Um, and that and that then becomes the focus. Um, and so, uh, you know, the technology is moving really quickly. We're going to see lots of testing and prototypes and concepts, lots more headlines about, um, you know, timelines for this stuff. But it's very unlikely that even a child born today will end up buying a level five autonomous vehicle as their first car. And not just because they won't be buying cars anymore, uh, because they'll be using, say, car sharing or so, that kind of thing more. You know, a lot of people will buy level four cars, um, you know, 10 years down the line, um, which will work autonomously under certain circumstances. A lot of people won't buy a car at all. And they, they, this decision will be kind of out of their hands because they will be making use of a whole variety of other forms of transportation I and mean, ride sharing and, and various other mobility systems. So, you know, this is going to be a very complex picture for a long time to come. Uh, level zero through two for the time being and then level four in the more distant future. Uh, but lots of other changes happening, electrification, you know, more sharing, mobility type services. Um, so it's going to be a very complex picture over the next few years. So I obviously have to come to terms with the fact that I'm probably not sending my kids off to school in a, an autonomous vehicle because they'll be too old by the time that happens. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe send the youngest to college in an autonomous vehicle or something. Yeah, but at that point they can drive and hopefully they've got a car. So, oh well, I'm, I, I, I can come to terms with that. Thanks, Jan. That was really fascinating yeah. and I look forward to visiting this topic more as the year goes on. Yeah, absolutely. And as I say, I will be writing about it in some form or another. Not sure what form that will take just yet, but uh, in the next few months trying to share some of what I've been learning here. Well, let's move on to our third segment and we'll keep this fairly brief, which is sort of an earnings preview. So Samsung, Google, Microsoft are all reporting results in, in next week. Um, others obviously reporting after that, but we'll focus on them in the interests of time. I just want to talk about kind of what to expect from those three companies in terms of what they're likely to report over the next uh, next week or so. We obviously had Netflix earnings that we talked about earlier. We're in earnings season, so this is going to be a big theme. Um, let's start with Samsung. Uh, Aaron, anything particular you're looking for with Samsung? Well, so you noted that you noted this in your write up in Tech Pinions. I am fascinated by the fact that semiconductors appears to have picked up for Samsung. And I think that's a good lead indicator for the smartphone market in general. Um, you know, its gr growth in the U.S. has stalled, and internationally, it didn't it didn't move very far, didn't move nearly as fast as we thought it would last year. My understanding of this is that's a pretty good lead indicator to how semiconductors are doing, and so hopefully that means, and a lot of people are expecting this, but hopefully that means there's a pickup in the smartphone space. I'm also really surprised. Because Samsung pre-announced some earnings indicators, and it sounds like the Note 7 uh, battery problem was not nearly as damaging as definitely as as I expected it would be, but I think a lot of other not as bad as a lot of other people expect it to be as well. Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting. They they Samsung's had. I mean they they've you know released preliminary results already, so we kind of know what they're going to look like and. Uh, they had a really good quarter. Uh, we don't know all the details in terms of which divisions performed well and all that kind of stuff yet, but uh, you know they had one of their best revenue and profit quarters for a very long time. Um, you know, and this is the quarter in which the Note Seven was finally fully recalled and all the rest of it. So, you know, quite surprising there. So, very interested to see the details around that. You know, what made up the difference? You know, obviously there would have been a shortfall around the Note Seven. There would have been some sort of uh, dampening of consumer demand for Samsung phones and so on as a result of that too and yet there's very little evidence of that and their results so far so I'm very curious to see kind of what they've done what trends they've seen and so on we should also see next week finally an explanation for the Note 7 uh, fiasco itself so they're, they're finally supposed to release the findings of their internal uh, investigation into the Note 7 fires and so on and what caused those so we should get some clarity on that next week too which will be good um, so that's the other thing that I'm looking for, you know, either as part of earnings or separately. But, you know, what are they going to do to ensure that we don't see similar issues with future Samsung phones? So that's the other thing, big thing that I'm looking for with them. Anything else about Samsung that you want to say, Aaron? No, I mean, the, the, there won't be many surprises because they pre-announced, which is not a, right. which isn't typical. 
um, for for companies. That, well, I Samsung say, does, Samsung but the others US do. Companies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, well, let's talk about. Uh, I said Google, but Alphabet really, obviously. Um, and you know, a couple of things that I'm looking for there. One is the other bets so continue to be sort of one of the most interesting aspects of Alphabet's financial reporting. Obviously, heavily loss, heavily loss making, relatively little revenue there. Um, but they've been doing a lot of belt tightening there, and so I'm looking to see if there's any sort of evidence of um, improved financial performance among the other bets in, in what they report. The other big thing I'm looking for is evidence of hardware sales, so whether it's Pixel or Home or Daydream or whatever, Google Wi-Fi even. Um, you know, all these new hardware devices went on sale in the fourth quarter, and so how have those sold? You know, that'll be reported in the Google other segment, uh, along with you know Google Play revenues and uh, lots of other bits and pieces that kind of go in there. But you know that's a small enough segment that we should see some kind of change in revenue there as a result of these hardware sales. So I'm very curious to see kind of how big that that difference is. Yeah, I I, I think with Google, and we've talked about this idea before. In fact, you first highlighted it for me last year. A lot of their ad revenue is coming from their own properties. Um, and, and in fact, that's really where their ad revenue growth is is in their own properties, like like uh, like YouTube. And I'm really curious where that's headed. Um, you know, Facebook has had this this reluctance to accept the idea that they're a media company, um, but in the end, they kind of are. That, you right. know, but the but what they the content they provide is you know, what we give it to provide. But in the end, it's essentially a media company selling advertising like a lot of other media companies. Google's increasingly headed that direction. And obviously, search is still massive for Google. Um, but at the same time, it's not where growth is necessarily. Like search is not, it, it isn't, isn't the future for Google. It feels like media is. And it's an interesting thought to think of Google as a media company in the, in the future. Yeah, no, absolutely agreed. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a very interesting dynamic to watch. Um, not related directly to earnings, but it was a fascinating thing. And I read this right before we started recording. You may not have seen it yet, but this morning, the Wall Street Journal had an analysis that it, it had commissioned of uh, Google search results for major consumer electronics categories. And what it found was that across, I think, 25 search terms on Google, um, a Google product or a Nest product, so something owned by Alphabet, um, was in the first ad slot uh, in, in the search results. So you search for smartphones, Pixel took the top slot, you search for carbon monoxide detectors, a Nest product took the top slot, and so on and so forth. Search for laptops, it was a Chromebook. Um, you know, and so I think 91% of the searches that they did um, for these 25 consumer electronics terms, a Google product had the top ad slot. So Google's basically buying its own ads, trumping uh, you know, whatever uh, it's normal advertisers are paying and to take the top slot there um, for 91% of these searches and for 43% of the searches, uh, Google or Nest had the first two slots. So, you know, this absolute dominance of its own search results with its consumer electronics products. It seems that when the Wall Street Journal shared the research with Google, uh, they made some pretty quick changes uh, and the numbers have dropped way down now. Um, and so by the time the article came out, the numbers look quite different, but the research was done and, and seems very reliable. Um, but it just it highlights an interesting uh, tension between, you know, we've talked about the tension between Google and its OEMs as it pursues this hardware strategy, but this is second level of tension now between Google and its advertisers, where Google is outspending some of its advertisers to take the top slot uh, in search results, which you know creates an interesting dynamic to be sure, and uh, you know Amazon sells its own products as well in competition with uh, some other companies on Amazon.com. But I think those vendors kind of know what they're getting into when they're competing with a category in which Amazon has a product. You know that hasn't been the case with Google, so this is a a new thing there. Well, and it really kind of paints this picture of of Google looking a lot more like like Apple. Right in in mm -hmm. the, in the days to come, where they are a consumer product slash media company. You know, Apple is a right. media company. That story is still unfolding, but mm -hmm. but but this idea of Google looking more like that than they do now doesn't seem like a, that crazy of a future. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Okay, well, let's talk briefly about Microsoft to wrap up this sort of earnings preview here. Um, you know, Microsoft's been through this interesting time. There's definitely a sort of a narrative emerging about Microsoft sort of 
having a comeback and, and turning itself around. Um, you know, Windows has been a, a dent to revenues, not just because they weren't charging for Windows 10, but because there's this complex sort of revenue deferral model there as well. They seem to be coming out of that as they sort of lap the, the, the anniversary of the Windows 10 launch. And uh, revenue seem to be growing again. Cloud is obviously growing for them. There's a lot of different moving parts under there. Um, you know, lots of interesting stuff to, to watch for there, I think, next week. Um, Aaron, anything particularly stand out to you? Uh, not especially. I, I mean, I think what's interesting about Microsoft is that I don't think we expect any big surprises, right? I mean, there and, and I don't even think there are that big there are that many big question marks right now. I, I, I think we're going to see continued progress of all the stuff that they've already been talking about. It feels like with a lot of other tech companies right now, there's some big questions still hanging out there. Mm-hmm. Um, some of these we'll be talking about next week, but like Amazon with its Alexa push like where is that headed what effect is that going to have in revenue and so forth right if there's one big question mark i, I just think it's the decline in pcs generally you know I, but that's mm-hmm. not a microsoft thing like exclusively although right. it obviously has a potential to be very damaging to them if that trend continues just simply mm-hmm. because they don't really have a space in in mobile other than surface and uh and that's not exactly you know a market leading position so right but again, that's not about Microsoft specifically so much as it is about sort of the market more generally. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely agreed. Yeah, it's um, it, yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, this is one of the, the challenges with Apple always is that its revenues are somewhat unpredictable because it's very hit driven, you know, and especially by the iPhone. You know, Microsoft doesn't have an equivalent to the iPhone that's sort of unpredictable. Right. Where there's a new version every year that, that makes or breaks the year basically, and Microsoft has so many different moving parts. Uh, you know, Google's the same in a different way. I mean, Google's much more reliant on one product, Search, but, you know, it's it's a fairly predictable revenue line at this point, I guess. You know, any big changes are going to be seen a long way off, uh, barring something completely uh, unexpected. But, uh, you know, with Microsoft, there's a lot of sort of underlying trends that are all going in a fairly predictable direction. They're not all positive, but at least you know that and you know kind of which direction things are moving in. Um, you know, Surface has been one of the relatively predictable ones that's been on an upward trajectory. They're going to have a bit of a down quarter. They didn't have any big new launches. Surface Studio was an interesting new product, but it's going to sell in very, very small numbers. So it's not really going to make a difference. They didn't update the Surface Pro. Surface Book got a very minor update. Um, so they're actually going to have a down quarter for the first time in quite a while, I think, with the Surface. But that's a relatively small business for them. And they've got other businesses that can make up the difference. Phones is basically to nothing now as well. So that also isn't the drag that it has been in the past. So. Um, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see the details, I think, with Microsoft as much as anything else. Yeah. All right, well, let's wrap up that there and uh, and wrap up the episode with our weekly pick. And Aaron, this, this week it's your turn to provide a recommendation to our listeners. So I'm recommending two of my favorite Christmas presents um, from this past Christmas. Uh, specifically, they're two books. They're both cooking books for those who have listened to our podcast long enough know that I like recommending cooking things. Um, these are fantastic books, though, and uh, in fact, are two of my favorites ever um, that I that I've ever had as far as cooking goes. Um, one of them is a book called The Food Lab by Kenji Lopez Alt. Uh, he runs the cooking blog series Eats, which I've recommended before as a pick of the week. The book The Food Lab is a tome. It's got it's a couple inches thick, and it is full of all kinds of fantastic insights about the science of food. He has a lot of great recipes, talks through all kinds of techniques, equipment. It's it's pretty comprehensive in terms of uh, sort of teaching you everything you need to know about a certain set of recipes. He organizes it in an interesting way. Um, so there's you know there's a chapter about roasting meat and what that means and he talks about different kinds of meat and, and what the roasting process involves and what you're going for when you do when you're attempting that and anyway and it's 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 just full of great images and pictures to help you go along really one of my favorite cooking cooking books and I don't want to call it a cookbook per se although it has a ton of recipes in it it's 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 much more in depth than just a book full of recipes. Um, so that's the Food Lab by uh, Kenji Lopez Alt. My other recommendation is also a book um, related to cooking uh, by Karen Page and Andrew Dornerberg. And this is it's an older book actually. It was, written, it was published in two thousand eight, but it's called the Flavor Bible. Um, both of these books, by by the way, have great reviews on Amazon. The Food 
the the food lab has 1300 ratings and, and a five star average um the flavor bible has over a thousand ratings and four and a half star average the flavor bible is a really fascinating book because it's not at all a recipe book um but it's 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 a great book if you are ready to start becoming more creative in your cooking than just following recipes um, and essentially the way it works is it has main ingredients and it has hundreds of them listed and it and in a column type format and so it has main ingredients, and then it has complementary flavors that mm. the authors derived by talking to a whole bunch of chefs. Right. And it indicates the strength or the reliability of these complementary flavors um, wow. based on how they appear. So if they're bolded and have an asterisk, then they're an especially strong one. And anyway, it, it, it's really cool because you can you can kind of say, okay, I, I noticed this was cheap at the grocery store. If I go buy that to make a dinner, how should I prepare it? You know what else? What other ingredients should I buy to go with it? You open up the flavor bible, turn to it, and it essentially lists all of these complementary flavors that can go mm. along with whatever the main ingredient is. Yeah. Really, really cool, useful, and 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 just kind of fascinating to read too. It's funny because there's not any sort of prose to the book. I mean, there is there are a couple of introductory chapters that 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 talk through just some some basics of cooking and matching flavors, but mm. but really the heart of the book is it, it, are these pages and pages of just main ingredients and their complementary flavors. A really cool reference and uh something I'm really excited to put to work this year in the kitchen. Great. Okay, well we will link to those along with some other stuff that we've talked about today uh, on the website. So thanks Aaron for those recommendations. You're making me hungry now. Um, again apologies to our listeners if if there's been any audio issues on this episode I'm not recording using my usual equipment or in the usual setting Um, and apologies too that both of us have been suffering from colds Aaron is early on in his I'm at the tail end of mine but you may have noticed that we're our voices are a little deeper than the usual a little more nasal Uh, but hopefully we'll be back to normal on all fronts next week Uh, thanks for being with us we appreciate you spending the time with us and we look forward to being with you again next time thank you